We sit in hipster bars and discuss if we're poetic enough. We pet our neuroses till they curl up. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Sarah Willie Hill. I am Ashley Maritson. And, and we, we are, are Demons and Dames. Up, the one with the broken ankle. Yeah. So this is actually in some ways quite an exciting because it's quite a medical episode because we are looking at a sort of Jacobian illness in this episode. An ache. Me performing under my not best conditions may be quite fitting. Yes. Perhaps you could chuck in a consumptive cough or two. Or I could. I'm really good (laughs) at those. I affected a pretty prolonged, protracted consumptive cough under the influence of Moulin Rouge. Starring Nicole Kidman. (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) That was brilliant. I know, it's charming. (laughs) So we're going to be looking at the case, really, of Anne Gunther, rather than, say, the life of Anne Gunther. And most of that's just because this is, we're looking at the area of her life which is very well documented and which we know about. So we don't know about the rest of it. Not so much. So Anne Gunther is a very famous demoniac. Sarah, what is a demoniac? So a demoniac is someone who is the subject of demonic possession. Usually, under the Elizabethan Jacobian times in England, demonic possession was the thought to be, at least, the direct product of witchcraft. So a witch would send demons into a person. So kind of make the introductions. Yeah. Devil. Hey, Satan, soon to be demoniac. Soon to be demoniac, meet Satan. Yeah, basically. This is a very well-established kind of way of these things happening. For those of our geeky listeners who like the Salem Witch Trials almost as much as we do, they'll know that this is kind of the... This is a similar case. The Salem Witch Trials take place significantly after this. I think through kind of the late Jacobian period... Sort of 1650s-ish? Absolutely. Okay. I should probably have looked that up. (laughs) Who cares about Salem? It's okay. I've got the same timeline tattooed on my right butt. (laughs) So Anne Gunter is the youngest daughter of a small landed gentry family. That's like I've got two butts. Your right butt. Your right butt cheek. I should have said butt cheek. I've only got one butt. (laughs) It's a very fine one. Please continue. (laughs) So Anne Gunter is the youngest daughter of a small landed gentry family that's originally based out of Birkenshire, the Gunters. Sorry, where? Birkenshire? Birkenshire. I've never heard of that. Berkshire? I think you mean Berkshire. Berkshire. Oh God, I'm not sure either. Oh my goodness. Oh dear. Well, I'm American, sorry. Okay, and um, oh (laughs) shit. Uh, Let's go with Berkshire, it feels right to me. In the summer of 1604, she falls ill. Her sickness is originally attributed to the quote-unquote mother, which is a sickness that later then becomes what we know of as hysteria, Mm -hmm. but it's thought to be basically the suffocation of the womb, Mm -hmm. particularly in women who are unmarried, i.e. not sexually active. So it's thought that their womb would, because of the lack of sexual activity, would actually like swell and could cause pains and actually move around their body. <laughs> so right. one could say I am suffering from the suffocation of the mother of the ankle at the moment. So, <laughs> so when you say suffocation of the mother, you don't mean by any mother in particular, you mean sort of mother, the, the entity womb. that is motherhood, the womb as yeah. the mother. Okay, and so basically it's a um, sort of mad, uh, hate-filled way of saying she's horny? Kind of. They, they thought that, and this is, the suffocation of the mother actually 
I think it goes back to um, Greek times. It was a it was a disorder that they originally identified in the classic world. Edward Jordan, the year previously, in 1603, he was a very well-known member of the Royal London College of Physicians. Close, but it'll do. Wrote a treatise, and I'm going to read the entire title out. Just, just wait for it. Okay. A brief discourse of a disease called the suffocation of the mother, written upon occasion which had been late taken thereby to suspect possession of an evil spirit or some such like supernatural power, wherein is declared that divers strange actions and passions of the body of man, which are imputed to the devil, have their true natural causes and do accompany this disease. I like it. It's snappy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so just as a, a kind of wow, general that's, knowledge... Wow, that's, that, that's the title. I fear for the wordiness, the wordiness of the actual trees does. That is the title. Um, I actually did my undergraduate thesis on demonic possession cases in England. And when I first submitted my thesis concept, I wrote the title as if it had been written in the early 1600s. It got rejected and I had to rewrite the title. Really? What, they were asking, wanted an acronym or... They just, they wanted something oh, that was like your... one <laughs> sentence and I'd given them a three-page title. Yeah, because okay. it was jokes. Okay, yeah, don't, don't, don't try and make the funnies with the whole Oxford history faculty. It's very serious. They don't really like it. Yeah, <laughs> but Edward Jordan, this treatise is quite important because it's considered to be the first psychological treatise because he said that the mother was not a condition of the womb but Ooh. of the brain. Oh. Oh, ho, ho. Ooh. that's fascinating. I always thought phrenology was kind of like neuroscience in its its psycho, you know, psychology yeah. in its infancy. But actually, well, this is it's it's this Edward Jordan. He does come back into this case mm-hmm. in a couple of years. And looking 16- forward to seeing him. Sixteen oh six, I believe. Sounds like a switched on dude. Yeah, I think he for his time. Little little wordy, a little he bit, was. bit little bit wordy, real talker. But so Anne in sixteen oh four falls down with a disease in the summer, and she thinks it's this suffocation of the mother, which is still generally thought to be a womb disorder, and she complained. Of so this disease is widely known. Yes, so it's to the point where she's able to popular self diagnose. I don't know if it was a self-diagnosis mm. or if it that, because this is before we get really good records of what's mm. going on. Mm-hmm. We just have her account of the illness in the summer from later trial records. Okay. Dum-de-dum. <gasps> and it, she thinks it's a natural disease. She, then Sorry, she gets better. What are her symptoms? I interrupted before you. <laughs> so the symptoms at this point she describes as having like low pains in her lower belly, swellings. She doesn't really go into the details and suffocation of the mother is a widely recognised syndrome or disease. Yes, very. Uh, but it's thought to be purely a physical ailment until Edward Jordan comes along the year before. Okay. So he's the one that sort of starts saying that this is actually kind of a mental ailment. And he does this through another demonic possession case, mm-hmm. that of Mary Glover, which happens uh, starting, I think, in 1602. Mm-hmm. But the symptoms of suffocation of the mother as it's recognised during this period are essentially... Swellings, pain, um, mental hysteria. I think they actually used it as a a kind of like, oh, you're female, you have a womb and you're having issues. Okay, so so she's diagnosed, she's had been diagnosed with it and it seems to have gone away. It seems to have gone away. Sarah, you mentioned that, you've, you've already mentioned Mary Glover, another demoniac from a period when I understand there were a large number of them so why are we looking at 
this case in particular? Why Anne Gunter? I think there are two reasons. One is kind of the historical reason that this is by far the best documented case in England. And the reason for that is because this case ends up involving James I, the King of England. Mm -hmm. It involves uh, the Richard Bancroft, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury, Samuel Harsnett, who becomes the Archbishop of York later. It involves a lot of Oxford dons. It takes place in Oxfordshire and the university gets involved. So Anne herself is surrounded by all of these very powerful people who take notice of the case and become really interested in it. It becomes kind of a political tool in itself. And because of the actions of her father, and her father is going to be a key player in this entire thing, it ends up going to trial not once, but actually twice. The first time... Because, as I said earlier, demonic possession in this period is is largely known as the act of a witch, you know, possessing this. So through her demonic possession, Anne accuses three women of possessing her, and they have a witch trial. But then after that, and the witches are acquitted, just in case everyone was ner- anyone was nervous. Don't care, but no, it's good to know. I was nervous. <laughs> they got acquitted. Um, after that, the possession continues, and her father decides to take her to the king. And try and escalate the case and he himself goes on to trial at the star chamber later so we have the star chamber records so we know so much about this case from that this case was happening the same year that Macbeth came out and there are actually references of it in Macbeth and in a lot of other contemporary plays shut up yeah I I love Macbeth also, this play... Should we call it the Scottish play? Do you think, like, the, the, Scottish, play. the Scottish play? I know it's bad luck to say both in a theatre, and we're not in the theatre, we're making a podcast, but... Well, Scotland does come into this case just a little bit through James. We've had more bad luck than we can handle already today. Let's call it the <laughs> Scottish play, just to be safe. the Scottish play. So, it's mentioned in a lot of contemporary plays, including the Scottish play, and mm-hmm. made reference to... There are no other Scottish plays. <laughs> <laughs> and... Anne Gunter herself becomes this kind of nine-day wonder in the Jacobian world. And it's just, it's kind of this, I find it a fascinating case for all of those reasons. Historically, I think it's important because it takes place at this cusp between rationality and the Enlightenment are are just out of reach and are coming Mm. in. And the belief in witchcraft and the belief in the demoniac is waning. And you can see this clearly enacted in the Anne Gunter case. So that's why this case from a historical perspective. From a personal perspective, as I said, I did my undergraduate thesis on demoniac possession cases in England under this period. You may have mentioned that once or 10,000 times. Or 10,000 times. <laughs> um, but when I was, you know, Anne's age, 20, I was in Oxford at the same time reading about her case. And I just felt this this great personal connection to her and what she was going through. I had a similar thing with Thomas de Quincey. <laughs> so I think the necessary backgrounds before we really get into the, the meat and bones of this case, as it were, is to talk briefly about the king. Oh, well, obviously. Because he's quite a big player. So what do you know I have about been James loved the by kings. Ooh. I just, I'm not, I haven't, but I just love saying that. <laughs> I have been loved by kings. What do I know about James I? Right, um, son of Mary, Queen of Scots, the first king of both England and Scotland. Something of a closet Catholic. His wife, oh, quite the Catholic, I believe. When you said closet, that was not where I, my mind went. Oh, yes, he was also almost certainly gay. Very gay. Um, 
And he, man, oh man, was he, you know, some people, it's nice to have a hobby, you know. Today, a lot of men are baking. Back then, James I was hunting witches. <laughs> and I believe he even wrote a book on this subject. Yeah. yeah. You know what? It's nice to see a, 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 a monarch who makes good use, good use of his time. So he was heavily involved in the Scottish witch trials in North um, Berwick. I'm probably saying that. Berwick. Berwick. In the nineteen in sorry the nineteen fifties the fifteen nineties excuse 1590s. me fifteen nineties yeah had it there been a ship lost at sea and it was blamed on these yeah, unfortunate and were actually, unfortunate broads in Scotland they and they were but there was what's interesting about that case which we're not going to get into because mm-hmm. God if we had a week it's fascinating mm-hmm. is that James was thought to be the target of this and it was thought that some of the nobles in Scotland who were not pro James were actually orchestrating the whole thing so it was actually like a proper <sighs> plot yes yeah 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 no 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 I, I think it was the red 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 Dougal was it not yeah. red Douglas and it's I not the it only was. famous plot that happened under James the first remember the member the 5th of November gunpowder treason and the launch of demons and dames yeah yeah. And so the gunpowder plot is actually uncovered during the course of events that yeah. we're going to So talk he's about. feeling a little bit paranoid. Yeah. Mm. He's also, in my notes, quite the intellectual. He's probably one of the most intelligent intellectual kings or queens of England that we've had. And you can see this in the treatise that he wrote on witchcraft called Demonology, which was uh, published in 1597. So that's that's James. He's okay. gonna appear later. So okay. watch his space. All right. Thanks. Nice to meet him. <laughs> <laughs> if you were gonna meet any monarch of England, who would you want to meet? Well, I've already met the Queen. Have you? Of course, I have, darling. <laughs> <laughs> I have though. <laughs> well, you know, um, she nodded. I curtsied, but I felt like she really saw me. You know, if you know what I mean. I felt like. We had a we had a moment. Any other monarch that I could meet? Um, probably Queen Anne, just because I can never remember anything about her, and I'd like to try and finally get a fix on who she is. Rabbits, lots of rabbits. <laughs> Apocryphal, not really. Um, <laughs> so Anne was born on the tenth of May, fifteen eighty four or fifteen eighty six. If I were her, I would definitely claim fifteen eighty six. We're going to go with 1584 just because I've already done her age at all those dates and minutes. <laughs> and that's a great reason, right? Yeah, that's a great reason, if not terribly kind. We do not know when she died, so there's no record of that, just FYI. Maybe she's still alive. <gasps> Vampire! <laughs> Anne was the fifth child of Anne and Brian Gunther. They were both in their 40s when Anne was born. They sound German. Gunther sounds German. It really does. Mm. Um, but as we have already established... They are a minor gentry family out of Berkshire. 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 Yes. It's spelled Berkshire. I know. Hey. Weird. We like to spell things and then pronounce them differently so we can figure out who's in the know and who's not. That's, 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 I think you just described the reason Eaton exists. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) This is what it means to be British. (laughs) As I said, she's the fifth child. She's the youngest she doesn't seem to have a very close relationship with either parent, but her father is especially distant. Even for the time in which fathers were, you know, fatherhood is, is changed and evolved quite a lot over the last 400 years or so. But fathers were seen as being kind of much more uh, stronger patriarchal figures that expected obedience mm. from their children. Monarch of their own little family city state. Yeah, but 
even under that, like Anne just gets kind of like left out of his notice. He's actually quite ill right before this happens and writes a will in which he leaves Anne, I think, ten pounds and he has quite a sizable estate that he leaves to the other children. Is there any suspicion that she might not be his daughter? No, no I don't think so. Oh, that's just... He's just... It's horrid. <laughs> he's had five kids, you know, he really seems to like Susan, her older sister, mm-hmm. who's actually married, I think, the dean of Exeter College and is quite well-to-do. And Anna is a bit of an afterthought in many ways. Okay. He was landed gentry, as I said, but not from the area where this happens in Oxfordshire for North Morton. So the family moves to North Morton in 1588. So the relative newcomers. I mean, at the time, people didn't move around yes. the way that we would. So, yes. you know, having been there 15 years means that, you know, they're just not from here, yeah, are they? Yeah, yeah, in Rodez. <laughs> he was also by far the most wealthy person in this area, in North Morton. Which might help warm him, people warm to him, or quite the opposite? I It may have had a negative impact, but... From the sounds of it, he didn't really need much help cultivating a bad reputation. There are quite a few legal cases that are brought against him, usually having to do with access to land, um, grazing cattle on common spaces, things like that, poaching. So he's Um, very protective of what's his. And what's not his as well. It seems like he's wealthy, but he'll get as much as he can get out of it. He's described by contemporaries as contentious, litigious, and violent. (gasps) Oh, wow. That's a deadly combination. Because, you know, litigious and violent are both very horrible in very different ways. You know, he's covered the full spectrum. Yeah, he really does seem to be like a class A bastard. I will sue you and then I will fuck you up. And this kind of comes to a head several years before Anne falls ill in May of 1598 when there is a village football match. Well, football matches... Never brings out the best in anyone. Doesn't. In this period of time, fatalities at football matches matches were not that uncommon. (laughs) I might watch... Oh, no, that's a terrible thing to say. This match was no exception because Brian Gunter actually killed two people in a melee, in a football match, having supposedly taken out his knife during the melee and stabbed them both about the head, at which point they both die with under a fortnight. Now, I wonder if he committed both these, let's call them penalties, at the same time. I hope so, because otherwise I'd like to think he might have been given the red card after he killed the first chap. <laughs> so the two victims... Did they were... win? <laughs> No record. I, I don't think winning was like, you know, when you've got two fatalities on the field, Obviously I don't feel they like... Obviously they won, you're right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so the two fatalities were John and Richard Gregory. Remember that name, it becomes important later. Okay. Richard Gregory, Richard Gregory, Richard Gregory, got it. They're members of a local prosperous yeoman family. Nice. But not nearly as prosperous as the Gunters. Because the gentry um, own the land and the yeoman work the land as well. Yes, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, Brian didn't actually own the land in North Morton, uh-huh. but he was he was renting the old rectory there. I really like the term yeoman. Yeoman, yeoman, yeoman. I think it it kind of reminds me of like Dostoevsky stories of like you know big well fed Russian peasants. Yeah, yeah. Not 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 the not the sort of like scrawly you know scruffless. No. That's a word. No. But they were, they were wealthy yeoman farmers. Blooming complexions. And this is, 
looking at the parish records of the time, they were probably the second wealthiest family after the Gunters. Okay. Even though there's still quite a large yeah. gap there. In the local parish records, their death are recorded, and then underneath the death records, someone has else has written in a different hand, both two men were killed by old Gunter. Old Gunter, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. He's, a, he's got a kind of like, he's got a kind of nasty nickname that precedes him. So the Gregory family appealed to the court in Abingdon, but due to the circumstances, because this happened in a melee, they declined to prosecute, and the family feud begins now, begins so the other two things to kind of just add to this picture of brian gunter that we know is that he refused to pay his taxes wow and accusations were brought against him again in the local courts that he brought two scallywags but like younger bulkier men to basically cause trouble in the town and okay. rough people up so and he's got perhaps he- steal things. He's got heavies. He's starting to sound more like a sort of mafia crime lord than a sort of member of the minor gentry. I think he's kind of the 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 underside of the, the landed gentry mm. where you get where he's this he doesn't really take shit from anybody. He doesn't owe fealty to anybody. He's out mm. to get what he can. And I think he just likes a bit of violence. This is Anne's father. Yeah, okay. Who maybe perhaps it's it's good that he doesn't really pay much attention to her because he doesn't sound like the most lightly there. nurturing and wholesome <laughs> guy, as we will well find out. What's really sad, I think, is that we don't, even though in this case we do wonderfully have Anne's own account of things, it feels like she's she doesn't have that much agency, and I think I think we'll talk about that later. So are you ready for the possession? I've only been waiting my entire life. <laughs> Anne originally falls ill with the mother in 1604. Her father is away, also ill, in Oxford at the time. He comes back, she's recovered. Then in October, the 23rd of 1604, she falls ill again. And this time, her father's account is that these, it's not the mother, and it looks like the falling sickness, which is what we would call dropsy. Epilepsy. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> dropsy, yeah. Epilepsy. No, that's where you get full of water. Epilepsy. They call in a doctor, and this is Dr. Cheney of Wallingford, who, in his words, was of the opinion that the said Anne was not sick of any natural cause or infirmity, yet did minister a purge unto her. And this time notwithstanding, her fits continued and grew to be worse and worse. He's basically... And I thought a purge would sort things out. (laughs) (laughs) So he's basically saying... He doesn't want know what's going on. Yes, Perhaps if I don't it's know, not natural. if I don't know, it's clearly supernatural. Yeah, several other doctors were called and reportedly shared the same opinion that the cause was not natural. I none of them knew what was going on. Yes, it's also interesting at this time that good, well-meaning neighbors start giving Brian Gunter and through him Anne Gunter pamphlets around demonic possession, supernatural, cunning men and these things. And these become quite interesting later on because the more Anne is kind of given information about what demonic possession cases look like that are notorious in England at this period, the more her fits kind of take on that character. Oh, funny that. Sorry, I'm just thinking about those pamphlets you get at the GPs about like you remembering <laughs> to get your smear test and the flu jab. <laughs> I want to start gorilla planting ones on, on symptoms of demonic possession. Yeah. You too might be possessed by the <laughs> devil. 
So that's fascinating. Okay, so she, it's not as though she's not been exposed to descriptions of what a demonic possession looks like. So the fits begin to have a very recognized pattern. They're swooning, then developing severe fits, characterized by... Are you ready? I'm so ready. The vomiting of pins <gasps> and contortions. Ah, oh, contortions I've done. The vomiting of pins. Not yet. Mary Thornbury, a girl of about Anne's age who was in the neighborhood and witnessed these, told of the turning of her hands back, strange juggling and turning of her eyes, going upon her ankles in a very strange and stiff manner. William uh, Sawyer, another contemporary, said that her body became heavier, that she was as it much weightier in her fits than she was out of them. Goodness me. I wonder if the reason she weighs more when she's fitting is because she's not helping whoever is lifting her in any way. So it's, yeah. She's essentially a dead weight. Yeah. Or rather highly mobile dead weight. But this is quite a common known symptom of those who are possessed. Because it's as though the, sort of the mass of some sort of demonic entity is actually added exactly. to their own. According to the testimony of the vicar, she was able in her fits to tell matters that she would not know of, describe people who have come to visit she had not seen, tell of conversations that happened in other parts of the house okay. and similar. Okay. Her Thomas Holland, who's actually her brother-in-law and is like the dean of Exeter College, describes her being able to read in the dark or with her eyes closed. I wonder how he could tell what she was, whether she was reading correctly. I assume it was, it was something like the Lord's Prayer, which she knew. Yeah. Or... And why close your eyes if it's dark? It's just yeah. It's such a it's such a it's such a weird thing. Her condition became worse when she was offered food. Her seeming ability to vomit pins and also pass pins in her urine. This is P I N, not P E N, by the way. P I N. So she's got like small metal spikes that are she's vomiting they're coming out of her nose she's sneezing them and they're coming in her urine okay it's it's quite it's disgusting i mean i'm i'm not going to lie sarah i am listening to this as someone who does not believe that Anne gunter was really in the midst of demonic possession and i'm imagining how she might have if obviously if she's about to eat she's going to spit out those pins she's been pocketing in the corner side of her mouth I think you've actually hit on it. And when we get to the Star Chamber trial, we'll talk about how she actually did a lot of these things. Um, Anne's possessions were witnessed by a large number of people. Brian Gunter instigated the crowd, sending for neighbours to see his daughter in these fits. And he starts to take ownership. Roll up, roll up. Yeah. And it's, it's really... It's, it's quite scary in a way. So the symptoms... Is describe... he getting any money from these? Not yet. No, but he can see, I mean, find, find an audience and the money will come. Birth. That's what we're doing. <laughs> so a lot of eminent physicians from Oxford were consulted, as well as quack slavers, which is my new favourite word. Absolutely. Does that mean people who entrap ducks? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it means kind of like the way you say the doctor is a quack. Okay. Now. So it was originally quack slaver as in the slaver of ducks oh it's a brilliant word isn't it i just don't know i'm not sure i understand i don't fully understand because a quack is a doctor who is a charlatan essentially isn't it someone yeah. we don't trust so that's what they're saying is okay. that they've had brian gunter is like parading loads of very so well-known doctors anyone here in. 
but also quack slavers. Okay. And these include Dr. Bartholomew Warner, Roger Bracegirdle, another great name. Ooh. Dr. Henry Bust. Well, we've got the bust and we've got the brace girdle. <laughs> Dr. Jean Chanel and Mr. William Banker. And they all agree that the cause is not natural. On the 6th of November, John Windor of Newbury, who is a specialist in diseases due to sorcery, examines Anne's urine. Not Ooh. her, just her urine. Okay. And he diagnoses it as a supernormal disorder. Supernormal. That's incredible. So that sounds supernatural. Yes. Okay. I wonder how he examines it. You know, there's that whole thing that you can tell if someone's diabetic by like tasting their pee. Because of the sugar content. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it tastes sulfurous. (laughs) (laughs) Brimstone in the urine, man. Five spice. So her symptoms are described by changing weight, changing height, convulsions, doubling, swelling, writhing of the body, quivering and shaking extraordinary stiffness, lameness, variation of strength, attacks of blindness and deafness, loss of feeling. And the way they would test loss of feeling is they would actually prick her with pens. Okay. As in like a, you know, a safety pen or something. And there's one point where in the star chamber she's giving record and she describes after one attack where they have pricked her with pens on her arms and her breasts so many times that the blood seeps through, fills two handkerchiefs when she's trying to get it off afterwards. Good lord. So it's quite... So it, it's, the physicality and the pain that she's enduring these attacks is, is pretty extreme. So the implication being that she's certainly invested in what she's doing. She may yeah. well herself believe it. Because, you know, I think I could pull off a possession up to a point, but, you know, once the pins come out... She's really committed. I'm squealing. Other symptoms included fearful visions of witches her eyes goggling, moisture coming from nose and eyes. I guess that's like crying. She's got cold. (laughs) (laughs) She foams at the mouth. She had strange circular marks on her hands. It's described as she had a swelling as big as a great household loaf, which means her belly swells as if she was pregnant. She sneezed pens sometimes several hundred times in rapid succession. She voided, urinated, and vomited pens. She went for very long periods of food her pulse was weak and actually occasionally stopped she could tell what money people had in their purposes her per- their purses so if you had okay five pounds in your wallet she'd tell you okay that's a good party trick she could describe the actions taking place in other rooms all right so those are the symptoms okay the remedies that were tried the vast majority of those are normal physiognom you know, are, are, are things that happen to people when they're unwell, with the exception of the pin, the voiding of pins, the, and the knowing, knowledge. The knowledge. Yeah. Other famous demonic possession symptoms that she did not have was being the ability to speak or understand other languages. Yes, I was waiting for her to start in the Latin. Yeah. N- none of that comes into mm-hmm. this case, which is interesting. I guess those are things that are a lot harder to, to fake. So the remedies that were tried thatch straw or reed from the house of the accused witches was burned and immediately felt relief okay goodness was she was it burnt in the room like did it smell nice (laughs) it probably didn't mary papwell who's one of the three accused witches was made to visit her and also utter a charm this also suddenly mary papwell comes in utters some sort of charm and immediately feels better brian gunter tries to get the bishop of salisbury to send preachers salisbury 
Salisbury. Oh my goodness. Salisbury. This is a bin fire. This is a pronunciation bin fire. <laughs> the Bishop of Salisbury. Next time, let's have a chat beforehand. Brian Gunter tries to get the Bishop of Salisbury. Salisbury. To send preachers to kind of drive the demons from her. But this isn't something they do under the Church of England. This is something only Catholics do. Yeah. So the Bishop, of course, refuse. But scholars and ministers meet in the sick room and they fast and pray. Okay. There were various tests with horns, candles, firebrands, and drums carried out to see if she was faking. Sounds a lot like Burning Man. (laughs) Her hair was pulled. As I already said, pins were thrust into her body and the ends of her fingers. Her fingers were run. (laughs) At least one cunning man was also consulted, but it was soon established that a natural remedy was not forthcoming. Sarah, you've talked about witches being summoned into the room to the accused witches being summoned into the room to speak charms whatever you've not actually told me about at what point these witches are accused what an amazing question ash so there are three (laughs) witches that are accused of bringing this illness on to anne and her family and uh this is the point where you have to remember the gregory's Of the football match. Oh, what was this? Oh, Ronald Gregory, Ryan Gregory. John and Richard Gregory. <gasps> never never trust a man with two first names. Oh, it's two men. It's two men that were, they were kinsmen. Yes, but their surnames are Gregory. That's the first name. Okay. They're ergo. They've all got two first names. Ergo. Can't be trusted. Trust me. That's rock solid. <laughs> well, there's an Ashley coming up here as a surname. Yes! So, uh... Oh. so the first person that anne accuses is elizabeth gregory so there's this long-standing feud between the gregory's and the gunters anne is really brought into this i think very much by her father i'm i'm rather feeling like he might have aimed that pointed finger and later confesses to the king and to the star chamber that that's exactly what's happening is that she's fallen under this kind of illness. Her father has captured this in order to further the feud I mean, happening in the village. this is the most attention she's ever had from him. Yeah. An opportunity to make him proud. So to a large extent, she's willing or pressured to go along with it. Okay. The other two women are Agnes Pepwell and her illegitimate daughter by a tramp, Whoa. according to the records, Mary Pepwell. Agnes Papwell is already rumoured to be a witch. Well, she's got an illegitimate daughter. I mean, that that's, yeah. that's <laughs> the early 17th century. Of course she's a witch. And, I, and Anne says in her confession later, the reason that she accuses these women is just because they had a reputation for witchcraft already yeah. in the village. Mm-hmm. Easy target. And it made the accusation of Elizabeth Gregory carry a lot more weight. Mm. Elizabeth Gregory also had a slight existing reputation for witchcraft, which I think really at this time just means that she was not well thought of. Mm -hmm. The vicar said that she was so disliked by her neighbours they had forborne her to accompany them in receiving the Holy Sacrament, and she was described as a notorious scold, great cursor, and swearer. Elizabeth, obviously, from the football match has no love lost for the Gunters. And when urged to go see Anne, she said, and these are her words, Gunter was a murdering bloodsucker and that the blood of the Gregory should be revenged upon the blood of the Gunters and she would have blood for blood. I care not for her, let her live or die. I will not come at her. Gosh, so I do absolutely understand the sentiment, but I think perhaps a little short-sighted in its, in its utterance. 
Brian Gunter, when he sees that maybe this isn't going the way that he wants it, which is he's out for blood, accuses Elizabeth of cursing him with a pain in the neck, which he cured by the traditional method of scratching her on the face until she bled. He said the relief afterwards was immediate. <gasps> oh, this is beyond bonkers. Was it really a traditional method? The scratching of the face of the purported witch? Yep. So scratching of the witch's face, burning her hair, burning thatch from her house, removing the victim. These are all things that are thought to bring relief. He's a heinous bastard, that one. A number of people, as I said, are giving or loaning Brian Gunter books and pamphlets on witchcraft and demonic possession. One of these is quite important. It's it's the case of the Thockmorton children, which Anne herself reads mm-hmm. and uses this, she says later, to influence her fits. She learns from this well-known pamphlet on demonic possession, mm. the names of the devils, what the symptoms should be like, and mm. how the case against the witches in the Thockmorton trial goes. Okay. Women accused of being witches in England in Elizabethan and Jacobean times almost always fall into the paradigm of what a witch was kind of in the collective unconscious. So they tend to be older, they tend to be ugly, they tend to have poor manners, they tend to be from a lower social class. The problem is, what do you do with women when they can't have children anymore? You know, what purpose do they serve? Well, I mean, a lot of the theories around why these witch hunts happen have to do with economics. And the fact that women are marrying men that they're that are of similar age groups, they they become these widows, they become helpless, they're feeding off their neighbors, and this creates the tension in which kind of witchcraft accusations come out. So I think there is there's a massive argument to be made for that. Yes. And what's so interesting, I think, about the Anne Gunter case is that the witchcraft accusations really are coming at the village level from this long-standing argument between the Gregories and the Gunters. Mm, yeah. What I find fascinating about this is that the Gunters are the ones accusing the Gregories of witchcraft when really the Gregories are the wronged party. Yeah, that's as it were. Makes it so astonishing this kind of like this sort of combative kind of like bully boy approach that Gunter seems to take to everything. Yeah, and I think it really shows us a lot about his character. I can't help that beyond the eco- think that beyond the economic sort of causes there's an innate sort of like cultural sort of suspicion of the post-menstrual woman oh yeah having served a biological purpose like really what 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 is she what for? Are they good for she's like she's essentially she's become a man but she's not a man that's a very it's challenging challenging space to occupy it's also interesting that this a lot of these cases not this one are happening under the reign of queen elizabeth Mm. in which you have a female monarch who mm. is also trying to kind of occupy that space. Very interesting. And that's one of the things I, I just find so fascinating about this period. And then James, in a sense, trying to repudiate that kind of... Yeah. ...distance himself from it. Good stuff, Sarah. Very good stuff. Back to the story. Another aspect that I think is fascinating in this case is actually that Agnes Pepwell, the mother of the illegitimate child via Tramp... Lover of the Tramp... Uh, and am I right in thinking that some sort of a nomadic, a, a, a nomadic male could be? I mean, was he the devil? <laughs> was he the devil? I don't think anyone says that, but I, I feel well, like people I would have, would have believed her. Well, what's fascinating is she actually confesses, and it's not like she just confesses once under torture. She actually confesses to being a witch three times during this period, quite publicly. My theory 
is and she is by the way acquitted so they go to trial in 1605 not mary but agnes and elizabeth both go to trial they're both acquitted under in abingdon under the assize court it's a really long trial we have some of the records from this brian gunter was evidently a bit of a bastard in it and kept telling the judges what they should be doing during the whole time which may be one of the reasons they didn't you know well this was just so transparently a case of like local feudism coupled with the kind of onset of like the enlightenment and And it's quite impressive that the judges kind of come out with this because given there was a a confession confession. (laughs) yeah no that is what i think is that because you know agnes had this long-standing reputation as being a witch she's cast in that role that she almost kind of unconsciously buys into it Mm. and actually believes because she's living in a time where the church is hugely powerful belief in the devil is very very real you know they're they're being preached at every sunday about the power of the devil on earth and i can see how a woman who's living on kind of the underbelly of village life you know has an illegitimate child owns yes. this role that's been cast So she's taken her. it as a source of empowerment. And I, I imagine, you know, was. a single mother in that period, it seems absurd to even use the phrase single mother, but in the context, that context, but, you know, how was she supporting herself, maybe, what she was doing, a bit of old herbal remedy, sort of like, you know... I think she probably work, was. A bit, of white, a bit of cunning woman. A bit of work. charms on the side and things. Yeah. But despite this, they, she is, in, a, in the end, acquitted. Mm. Kind of right before the trial, Anne is actually sent to stay with Susan and Thomas Holland, her sister and brother-in-law, at Exeter College for an extended period of time. Um, This is Thomas Holland, by the way, who later worked on the King James Bible. Nice. Yeah. Anne's period of time with her sister Susan and brother-in-law Thomas, I think... Exeter's a lovely college. It is a lovely college. I hope she had a nice time. (laughs) I think she really did, because she's around all of these very well-to-do young gentlemen that are of a contemporary age to her, some of whom are quite taken with her. Hey, who doesn't love a demoniac? And also quite a lot of like very important men who believe her. Right, yeah. And so she's getting all of this attention. She's away from Brian, her terrible father. Loathsome papa. She's kind of, she's the absolute centre of attention. She's probably one of the few women of her class who's in Exeter College at this period of time. Certainly the only unmarried one. And one of the things that happens quite a lot in her fits, and interestingly enough, starts happening around the time she goes to Exeter College is her garters start undoing themselves, <laughs> revealing her bare legs at, at quite a few opportunities. <gasps> oh my goodness. <laughs> Demonic, demoniac striptease. I think, it, I think it's There's pretty... There's a burlesque act in there somewhere. One of the undergraduates who was quite taken with Anne... And her, uh, self, unti- and her self untying to garters. <laughs> ...was John Stewart, the Earl of Moray, and a member of Christchurch College. Way! But he actually didn't Way! believe in the possession. Way! Sorry, that was my college. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons he didn't believe in the possession is because he was watching her garters quite closely... And he would see her in kind of dark passageways and things, start hitting her head on the wall or her hand against the wall to create a distraction, while the other hand quickly undid the garters. <gasps> but he was still quite taken with her. Oh, he, he loved he her. He probably thought she had a love spirit. <laughs> he did. Well, she certainly wasn't boring. 
Another person who was around her at this time was a kinsman of the Gunters, Thomas Hinton, who didn't believe what was going on. He had originally been called by Brian, because he is a kinsman, we don't know the exact relationship, to see Anne's demonic possession and help her be saved, as it were. And at first he believes, then he sees her again at Oxford and they start doing a lot of tests... And he's like, she's faking it. I mean, it's, I imagine it's harder to fake it away from her own turf, you know, as well, like, presumably. Yeah. And he becomes quite important in the trial because he thinks she's faking it. He knows about the animosity between the Gunters and the Gregories. And he's very, very well connected. He's very well to do, much more so than Brian. And he actually arranges a meeting in private with some of the judges. Oh, right. at the Abingdon Assize right before the trial and this may be one of the reasons that they were so happy to acquit the three witches even though Agnes has confessed multiple times so he essentially gave them the lowdown he gave them a bit of context that wasn't very uh, loyal of him I think it's fair. Like No, I mean, it was absolutely the right thing to do. So, unfortunately, we don't have the trial records. Damn! We do have an account of the trial in various letters and things of people who were there, because okay. there was quite a big uh, audience. We know it took place on the 1st of March in 1605. Uh, we know that Thomas Hinton did step up. We also know that four days later, the College of Physicians put out a report saying that Anne's possession was not genuine. It's quite definitive. Deal. It should have been definitive. And I think if we were dealing with anyone else but Brian fucking Gunter, mm. it would have been definitive. You know, I really don't like the name Brian. I don't. like. I, don't I always like... think of, like, you know, Life of Brian. There's a kind of, like... Actually, I should be polite, shouldn't I? I don't want to alienate all the Brians out there. Well, I'll love the Brians and you can hate them. How about that? <laughs> Brian Gunter throws a massive fit at the end of the trial and ends up shouting... Oh, no, he's not possessed, too. Uh, ...that he demands the justice that the th- Mr. Throckmorton got. Okay. Which is this other this case we know he had the pamphlet yes. of. Combative, legisl- legislative, and violent. Yes. He's also Brian Gunter, if you think about it. These are women in this tiny village 12 miles outside of Oxford that he's living with, has lived with, that he's basically orchestrated his daughter to accuse of witchcraft over the period of like a year massive time it's investment s- it this is a huge loss of face for yes. him yeah i mean this woman you know who had an affair with a tramp it doesn't become much more you know it doesn't come become much more lowly than that and the gregory's now it's not only can blame him for you know killing two of their kinsmen but also orchestrating all of these thoughts Mm. against Elizabeth's reputation. Mm. So he's not in a great position. And after the trial, guess what he does? He he goes to the star chamber. No. Oh, does he kill someone? Does he flog a horse? (laughs) I don't know, drown a puppy. Have have, have a pancake. He probably does. Well, he probably had a pancake, to be fair. There are pancakes all over the place. He I'd have had a pancake. continues to seek to bring Anne's affliction to greater authorities. Oh, it's the thing as the judges. Best. Okay, yeah. He goes and to the Supreme Court or equivalent. Well, guess who's coming to visit Oxford in August of 1605? Is it the king? It's the king! 
thing. Who was he going to stay with? Well, he wasn't going to stay with the Gunters. They're too lowly, right? Well, the Gunters weren't actually in Oxford. Oh, no. They're yes, in, they're in okay. North... Um, Where was he going to stay in Oxford? I don't remember. Oh, God. I have actually read about this, but I just don't remember. Okay. It's not but he's there for... interesting. He's there... You know, James is there with his wife and his son, probably one of his many gay lovers that he used to tout around mm. with him. And they've... They've orchestrated the the college, you know, brings out all the stops. This is the second. I reckon he was probably staying at Christchurch. Charles the first, like, had his, you know, the son had his like standing parliament yeah. at Christchurch. It's quite possible. Probably, yeah. You know, they had the cathedral. It's a great college. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually. So Oxford is just rolling out the red carpet. James arrives the twenty seventh of August, sixteen o five, and somehow Brian Gunter pulls a bunch of strings, uses connections to get him to meet Anne the first day he's in Oxford. You've got to admire, like, you know, Brian Gunter's sort of ability to make things happen. It's a shame they're all being made to happen for such vindictive reasons. Yes. And it's... We're really not sure what Brian Gunter's motivations are, whether he's seeking justice for a higher power or he's simply trying to get the king interested, which get, kind of renews his social status yes. that has been depleted by this trial. And he knows that the king is into this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he's written a treatise on it. He was involved in these witchcraft cases. Mm. As James I's reign in England goes on, he becomes much more of a skeptic. But this isn't very apparent in 1604, 1605. Mm-hmm. And so I think Brian Gunter thinking that the king's going to be on his side is not a bad shout. Yeah. You know, and James I is really interested. Um, he ends up meeting with Anne four times. Poor girl. Which is quite, quite a lot. Um, but he, instead of kind of dealing with this personally because, oh wait, I think he has shit to do, he turns this trial over to... Dum de dum de dum de dum. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Richard Bancroft. Oh my God, Archbishop of Canterbury. Woohoo! <laughs> so psyched that I now can I now know the name of the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 17th century. Well, he was also the subject of my undergraduate thesis. Oh right. So I have I have quite a soft spot in my okay. heart for Richard Bancroft. Richard Bancroft, who is quite busy at this time, passes it on to Samuel Harsnett who was his kind of right-hand man, spent a lot of his Soon career... Soon to be Archbishop of York? In 1631. Okay, great. <laughs> so Samuel Harsnett, still quite young at this point, mm-hmm. got a ways to go. He's busy going around disproving demonic possession trials. Ah. And the reason, very briefly, that he's doing this is because demonic possession trials are being used, not in this case, but in many other cases, by two groups of people who are waging a religious war, not an actual war, but in the in the hearts and mind of people in England for power. And these two groups of people are first the Catholics, who are banned from the country, they've been kicked out, but you have Catholic priests that are coming over to England and holding exorcisms mm-hmm. as a way of trying to gain influence. And, and James has, you know, a little Catholic bit of... Leanings. Yeah, you know, that's where the gunpowder plot. And the other group of peoples are the Puritans under John Darrell. Mm-hmm. And Darrell's cases are really fascinating, well-written about as well. And Samuel Harsnett has been running around the country for like the last 10 years, disproving these cases, showing that they're frauds. And one of the reasons they were probably so interested in Anne Gunter's case 
is because they managed to get a... She's not being used by these two figures, but they're able to disprove it because mm. she confesses to having faked the entire thing under the pressure of her father. So Anne is actually taken by the king and put into Samuel Harsnett's house. Removed from the perfidious influence of her family. Yes. And someone else exciting comes to her at that point. Are they really exciting? I think so. Okay, who is it? Edward Jordan from the Royal College oh, of Physicians. Oh, he has an extremely long titled treatise. On the suffocation of the mother. Etc, etc, etc. He says this is not demonic possession. He doesn't say definitively whether she's faking it or whether she's just ill, but he says it's not demonic possession. That was kind of him. Yeah. And eventually, over this period of time, the king continues to meet with Anne periodically, which I think is, is quite impressive that he is actually taking such a personal interest in yeah, her. Yeah, I just, you know, self. you said he had other things to do. I really don't think he does. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually he gets her to confess to him that she is faking it. Wow. And once she does that, then they decide to escalate this and move it into a very public sphere. Again, as I said, they're trying to disprove demonic possession cases in England because yes. they don't want other groups to be using them for kind of religious political And the power. king's on board with this now. And the king's on board. Yes. And so they move this into the star chamber. I love I'm picturing the scene where Anne confesses to King James I. I imagine there was a lot of ring kissing and kneeling. I think he was a sort of kindly paternal figure, you know, the father, the kind father she never had. Mm. But a bit camp. Bit, and Better dressed. <laughs> Short, wasn't he? Not an not an attractive man. I don't I don't think any of them would have been terribly tall at this period of time. Okay, okay. Short even by the standards of the time. Okay. Henry the Eighth or tall. Well we don't we don't know how Henry VIII tall Anne was, unfortunately. Supposedly she got taller during her fits. <laughs> so who knows? There's another really important thing that happens to Anne while she's staying with Samuel Harsnett, who by the way, she was terrified of. She was not, she, he sounds like quite a... Imposing. Imposing, nose to the grindstone, will write, bring a confession out of you guys. So, okay. Yeah, and she was terrified of him. Okay. But there was somebody in his household whom she was not terrified of. Oh my God, is it the Duke of Moray? <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, I've still um, hung up on him. But she falls in love with a, he's called a servant, but he's from a very well-born gentry family. Of the name of Ashley. <gasps> oh. Unfortunately, we don't have his Christian name, his first name. Maybe it was Ashley Ashley. Maybe it was Ashley Ashley Ash Ashley. Such a good name, they used it twice. You know what? You can always. You know, we're lovable, us Ashleys. Yeah. We are. I'm not surprised she fell in love with him. So she falls in love, probably for the first time in her life, and she actually seeks from the king to help her with this marriage. He agrees to give her basically a dowry. And to bless the marriage. And in exchange, she goes to the Star Chamber. So, Sarah, you keep talking about the Star Chamber. Is this a chamber somewhere that's shaped like a star? <laughs> you know what? I don't actually know what it looks like. I hope so. I, I think, like, in my head, it has this beautiful kind of dark blue ceiling with lots of gold stars painted on it. But I don't yeah. know if that's true. Or maybe one of those black velvet cur curtains, the like, little LEDs poking through, like you get in, you know... <laughs> Candles. Gay bars in the north. Candles. <laughs> I think this is a bit before LEDs. So the star chamber 
Do you want to know what it is in Latin? Yes. Chimera Sistellata. I could have told you that, actually. <gasps> I just chose not to. Well, it was an English court at the Royal Palace of Westminster from the late 15th century to the mid-17th century. So it stops in 1641. Mm. It was composed <laughs> of the privy councillors and common law judges. So it kind of supplemented the judicial activities of the common law and equity courts in both criminal and civil cases. So it's a kind of supreme court. Yeah, I think it's it's about the closest that we get in this period of time. So early in 1606, the Star Chamber proceedings were initiated against Brian and Anne Gunter for false accusations of demonic possession and witchcraft. Samuel Harsnett, oh, and yes. then also Richard Neal, who was another important person in the clergy at this time, were directly involved in organizing organizing the accusations against Brian Gunter. More than 50 witnesses gave evidence and their depositions covered hundreds of full scrap pages, making this among the best documented English witchcraft cases. Ah. The Gunter case is interesting partially because it demonstrates how witchcraft accusations begin in the context of personal grudges and village conflicts and then emerge into the context of the national ecclesiastical politics at this time. Yes. So this shows us how it, things can, like, you know, level up. Almost everyone involved in this trial is a skeptic. Ah. And that's kind of a new phenomenon. Including Brian and Anne, you know, yeah. Oh. Anne's first interrogated on Sunday the 24th of February in 1606 at the Holborn Court in Grey's End. She is probably 21, maybe 19. She confessed that under pressure from her father, who, in her words, agreed to feign and counterfeit herself to be bewitched. So she claims that he was in it from the outset. Yeah. She describes to the court in the court documents that she originally was ill in the summer of 1604 with what she says is the mother. The suffocation of the mother. And her father's not around, but that as soon as she gets ill again in October and he is there, he not only pressures her into faking, it's kind of more of a, a process, but he starts giving her salad oil and a green potion that make her violently ill. To me, it almost sounds like a modern equivalent of like Mon Monkhausen by proxy. Wow. Where he is actively, with the help of some of these cunning men and things, making her violently ill. And she kind of learns to feign the demonic possession symptoms so that she's not being drugged, which is what's going on. So according to Anne's Why? testimony, <laughs> it's to get back at the Gregory's. I mean, it's it's all about the family lateral approach. But he must have been, you know, he's a man of the world. He travels clearly. Perhaps whilst he was away, he's heard about mm -hmm. similar cases. And then as soon as and she... he thinks, I can use that. Yeah, and as soon as she gets really sick, people are giving him records of these cases. So everyone's very quick to assume... Exactly. And it's... Possession. Interesting to me, because it's not like... We go to the doctor. I'm going to A&E later to have my foot x-rayed, hopefully. I wish you'd stop talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, that's quite a straightforward process, right? Mm -hmm. The only people who are going to involved is me, the doctor, possibly an x-ray technician, right? It's, it's going to be in and out. I'm definitely not going. <laughs> <laughs> I think that in Jacobian times and Elizabethan times, diagnosis is, is almost more of a social process. Mm. the medical industry is 
very new in its infancy. They're, you know, not even really cutting up people to, to see how everything works. They actually believe that the womb can migrate to different parts of yeah. the body. I mean, they're not that far away from sort of theories around humours, are they? No, not at all. I mean, a lot of these people, they're... One of the things that Brian Gunter does is actually burn brimstone under in Anne's room, which, again, makes her violently ill, which helps with the possession cases. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like maybe Brian Gunter isn't the person that first suggested this. It looks like it might have been one of the doctors that suggests demonic possession. Yes. And Brian Gunter just fucking runs with it. Mm -hmm. That's That's my theory. Okay. Anne also describes how basic trickery was used. She feigned temporary recovery when the thatch from the ruse of the accused witches was burnt. She faked second sight, having her father and her maid report yes. conversations to her. Clearly, I was thinking someone's clearly complicit in this. Anne recounted how her father kept her drugged and burned brimstone in her bedroom and gave her a mixture of salt, salad oil, which is like salad oil and herbs to drink. And then how also she stuck pins in her arms and breasts to show that she had no feeling. And then a neighbor, Alice Kierfoot, was, who was also hated the Gregories, showed her how to stow pins in her mouth and by sleight of hand put them up her nose and things. So when she's sneezing, vomiting pens and passing them in your arm, she's been taught very cleverly how to do this, this sounds by a woman. immensely traumatic. It really this does. physical abuse she's being subjected to. You can only assume she's had a horrific upbringing that's got her to a point where she'd play along with it. And this, the, the demonic possession fits happened for a year and a half. Oh. Anne also testifies how her father beat her several times when she refused to stimulate fits. Once she hid in a neighbor's house to escape and her father dragged her out by her hair, trod on her with the heel of his boot and was reported to have yelled, what you scurvy harlot, will you not come home with me? What I find incredible about this case is, you know, when I think of cases of diagnosed demonic possession, I assume it's because someone has something like epilepsy and people at the time are not able to understand it. It's a misdiagnosis. It's the fact that this is fraudulent from the outset that seems yeah. so exceptional and so cynical and puts it so firmly in the kind of like the waning days of the of the witch hunt hysteria. I think most people think that demonic possession cases would have been epilepsy, but what's fascinating is epilepsy is one of the few diseases they actually knew about and could diagnose accurately. Ah, so that's um, pop, you know that's a kind of contemporary yeah. misunderstanding. So they called it the falling sickness. Yes. But they, they totally knew what epilepsy was. Right, okay. Uh, yeah. Which, because I, I totally thought that as well. Yeah. And then was reading about it, was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, but I think that's And where... here we were all being like, oh, stupid Jacobeans. <laughs> just, you know. <laughs> nope. That, that they had down. People also come through in witness statements. So you have over 50 witness statements that we still have from this trial about how Brian Gunter really didn't like his youngest child. Before her illness, he ignored her and was planning to leave her with a small inheritance. It, it really, I think, creates the picture of how this kind of unloved child, when her father does start paying her such attention, is so pressured. What we also find out is that Anne tries on multiple occasions to stop this over the course of a year and a half to the point where once she she's overheard by servants telling her father she's going to hang herself 
And at this period of time, not only would that have resulted in her death, but her soul being condemned to hell. Like, mm. suicide was seen as such a taboo. But she didn't be willing to do that to escape her It It really shows situation. how difficult it was for her and her state of mind. What I find very annoying as a historian is that there's no record of the verdict of the Star Chamber hearing. Even though this is one of the most well documented yeah we don't actually know what punishment was given to brian gunter we do think we know he was found guilty presumably but we we don't actually have a record of it we do know that he was in jail in lambeth prison but we don't know for how long we do know later that he did return to Oxfordshire, to North Morton, and continued his life as a gentleman. His reign of terror. In the parish records in 1624, he's still the wealthiest man in the neighbourhood. So still going as well. If he had some sort of, like, he had to pay a penalty or something, it probably wasn't that arduous. Because by 1624, he's incredibly wealthy And he again certainly wasn't stripped of his status in any way. Yeah. He did not grow old gracefully. We know that from further accusations from the local clergy brought again to the Star Chamber in 1620 that he twice led riots against the church in North Morton and tried to run one Gilbert Bradshaw out of the town with a group of friends and family at Point of Pitchforks. He died in 1628 and was buried in Oxford at St. Mary the Virgin. Old Gregory sounds like the sort of character you imagine they'd talk about in the village for a couple Mm -hmm. of hundred years after he died. He did not mention Anne in his will. Unfortunately, we have no idea what happened to Anne. So we don't know if she married Ashley Ashley. We don't. We haven't been able to find a record of her marriage. And she could have been left out of the will because she was deceased. Or she had been disowned. There was an Anne that was in the will, but they think that was actually Gunther's niece because the time of her marriage was such like she would have been significantly younger than Anne, his daughter. And since his wife, his daughter, and his niece were all named Anne, there's a bit of confusion there. (laughs) We do know from the king's own account that she was in love and this was reciprocated by the Ashley. and The Ashley. The Ashley. The one and only. Uh, who was a member of the Gentry clan based in Dorset. We do know that James made a set a financial settlement on her and gave his blessing to the marriage. Okay, but we have no record of the marriage. Is that unusual? I mean, generally, do we have records of most marriages from this period? If we don't have one, are we to assume it did not take place? It could be that it just took place in a parish where the records have been lost for that okay. period of time. I mean... Because there's no set of master records as such. It would have been parish specific. And if she was estranged from her father... She may have taken a different name. Well, she would have taken Ashley mm. as her name, presumably. Mm-hmm. But it may have taken place outside of Oxfordshire. Okay, yes. So we don't really know. We know the Ashleys are from Dorset. There's probably an Anne Ashley that was buried in Dorset at some point in this period. Wait, has anyone checked? So there is a brilliant book by, I think, James Sharp called The Bewitching of Anne Gunter. He was actually a visiting scholar, I think, when he was inspired at Oxford, when he was inspired to start looking into this. And this book is from like the late 90s. I think it's 1999 or 2000. Read about the case and then started looking at all of the primary documents and went into the parish records and did an amazing job of that. So I think if there was a marriage certificate in Oxfordshire, he would have found it. Okay. But I don't think that means that she 
didn't get married to this Ashley person. It just means it happened elsewhere. Okay. Or in a parish where perhaps the records How are lost. How does one find these records now? I mean, do you need to go to the local sort of town hall or the local kind of like parish records sort of you and you know go through some dusty it. books or is it all digitized in the british library some of it's digitized okay. so a lot of this stuff is digitized but i think for local parish records you actually are going to the local parish and digging through these i'm gonna go find her leave it to me i'm gonna find out what happened to Anne gunter i, I would absolutely I just got to do a project that. on the semiotics of beauty next week after that <laughs> I, and so that really is the case of Anne Gunther. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. I think that even though we've only got this window onto this one period of her life, there's quite a strong sense of the sort of immensely messed up family dynamic that produced her, you know. And I think that the kind of abuse that she was being subjected to is entirely relatable. It's the sort of thing we read about today. Oh, What's completely. so interesting about her is that this is really a story entirely about people. No one's at any point really invested in the idea that it's about anything else. This is why when I was reading about the case this time, and I've been reading a lot about um, Munchausen by proxy. You know, maybe because it's just a bit more fun. I've been reading about it recently because of the case of Gypsy Rose, and I think the dynamics of what I've been reading about that, kind of those true crime cases, kind of shot out at me at this relationship between Brian and Gunter and his daughter Anne mm. and it's just this idea that he's using the health and well-being of his youngest child for social and potentially financial gain yeah and he's orchestrating this big thing and he's getting all the attention out of this and I get the impression that Brian Gunter was somebody who really liked the spotlight seemed to it would certainly sound that way i find it also you know like when i think about the witch trials of the early 17th century late 16th and you know i do it's a sort of unstoppable force and it seems incredible that just less than 10 years after james i has published his book on witch hunting you know everyone's become so completely uninvested in the idea I think a lot of that, and this is again from the research I did for my undergraduate thesis, is because it became politically dangerous to foster the belief in witchcraft and demonic possession because it was being used mm. by other political groups. So and as soon as that happens, James says, oh yes, well of course witches exist, of course all of this exists, but most of these cases are mm. fake. And it's only I, as the power of both the church and the state... Divine right of kings. And James was totally into All the All about the DR of kings. He really was. It, that it's really only him that's able to say the difference between us. And because they got Anne to confess so freely, it backs up that message that they're trying to push. Yes. And I love the idea that, you know, Anne was subject to her father... But he was subject to, to forces king. to the king. And it's the king that really sets Anne free. I mean, it's unusual, you know, like, like this direct invention of a mon an intervention of a monarch. It feels like the stuff of fairy tales. It's incredible that he would kind actually... of was her fairy godmother, yeah. in a way. Like, you know... I really hope that he, he like, in. you know, gave her a nice, a nice little startup fund to her and Ashley Ashley, and he'd pop in and play with the grandchildren, Aww. you know, play with their children, and... Well, there's no... Then Charles would too, but then Charles got his head chopped off, so probably still... <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no record of him actually meeting Anne after the, the Star Chamber trial, and the reason for that is because he got pulled away from the case by... The gunpowder plot. 
And so there were there was a meeting that was scheduled between himself and Anne that never happened because, you know, the 5th of November. I've cancelled for worse reasons. <laughs> <laughs> well, but so- I, do, I do love that idea. And I really, in my deepest heart of hearts, hope that Anne had a wonderful, fulfilled yeah. life after this. Yeah. Because I think she really went through hell. Yeah, I hope she did too. So, Ash, thank you so much for sharing the story of Anne Gunter with me. And no, and thank you for delivering it through the haze of pain. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to Demons, Demons and, and Dames. Dames. Bye. Bye. Wow. We sit in coffee shops and discuss. We speak of our men folk, then we give up. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Demons and Dames. We will respectfully encourage you to rate us, to review us, and to recommend us to your friends. And enemies. It might make you like them a bit better. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Demons Dames Pod, on Twitter at Dames Demons. Or you can get in touch with us via Facebook or demonsanddames at gmail.com. Bye! Bye. He says that he loves her. But now-